You're listening to the Writers Forum. This edition is brought to you by the law firm of Alker and Rather LLC. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I'll be speaking with author Sierra Horton McElroy about her debut novel, Atomic Family. Ms. McElroy has a BA from Wheaton College and has a Master's of Fine Arts from the University of Central Florida. Her writing has appeared in numerous publications, including Bridge 8, Iron Horse Literary Review, and Saw Palm. Welcome to the show, Sierra. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, you know, your novel, Atomic Family, is set in South Carolina in 1961. So I, my first question is, is there a reason you picked South Carolina for the setting for the story? There is. My grandfather was a nuclear scientist who worked at a hydrogen materials facility called the Savannah River Plant, which was located right outside of Aiken, South Carolina. That's where my father grew up. And so I grew up hearing stories from the Cold War um, about what it was like to live in a town so near a top secret, very dangerous nuclear facility at the height of the Cold War. So I feel like the stories were just embedded in my my family history and therefore embedded in my own childhood, even though I am not from there. Okay. Well, you know, that's interesting because in the story in South Carolina, it centers around the Sterling Creek plant. And I'm guessing now, since you said that, that that is a, a, a step in or a fit in for, Savannah, for the Savannah River plant. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. It's my fictionalized version. <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk about the plant. I mean, as, as the name suggests, it's near a local creek or a river, uh, presumably that provides some water for the surrounding areas? That's right. Okay. And historically, and I think this is so relevant to these to, to times we're in today, this was a time when people, out of fear, built bomb shelters and sirens went off for school children to practice what to do in case of a nuclear attack. Did you have to do research, not only on the nuclear aspects of the plant, but research on the time period and how people were feeling in those days? A great deal of research. And one thing that helped me immensely was consulting primary sources and materials from the 50s and 60s. I found it very helpful to not just read modern reflections on what it was like, but to actually engage in the material that would be given to children and given to families. So I read a great deal of civil defense agency propaganda, basically, which is what it was, um, telling children, you know, what to do if you see a suspicious plane flying overhead, what to do if you hear a siren, but you're away from your home. And it was so much um, material generated for the quote-unquote average American family. Um, I watched documentaries, I watched films, you know, a lot of even like early Twilight Zone episodes deal with this. So, so much of the media of the era relates to um, the effect of the Cold War on the family unit and small-town life. So, I found that very, very helpful. And one of my favorite things was getting to read different instruction guides for how to build a fallout shelter. I mean, They were so weird, (laughs) and it was delightful, and I I found that to be a really enjoyable part of the research process to understand the psyche behind the Cold War. Well, it's interesting that you went back and read the contemporaneous things. I mean, that that clearly, Mm -hmm. and this comes across in the novel, and unfortunately I'm old enough to remember that time, Um, (laughs) it gives you a sense of the, it gives you a real sense of the time, and 
that this was something that, for lack of a better way to describe it, was a, a psychological aspect that was in the arteries or the veins, if you will, of people at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Completely. And one of the things that really fascinated me was the effect on children, which is very evident all the way through the book. Um, and there was a, I don't remember what the film was called. I'll have to look it back up later. But there was a, a short film from the 50s that explored um, a accidental alarm that went off in a small town. Like they actually like gave the wrong signal and said a bomb is really coming. Kind of like what happened in Hawaii a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And in this short film, the children are so panicked that one little girl locks herself in the refrigerator thinking mm. that that would keep her safe. And so, you know, the implication is that yeah. she suffocates. Yeah, it, And it, I just never forgot that. I was like, these, the, the children take it seriously. They, they believe it so deeply because this is the message that is given to them. And we knew at the time, like this came out in the 50s, we knew the effect on children's developmental, you know, growth. Like, yeah, this is the yeah. message that they're receiving all the time. Yeah. Well, and we're going to talk about Wilson, the, the young character that kind of reflects that in a minute. But so this is a time where homemade fallout shelters are, ma- are being made and school children are taught to hide under their desks. Now, these things are all, as we know, useless for purposes of a nuclear attack. But they did serve a psychological purpose, but for good or bad, right? Mm-hmm. Completely. You know, one of the questions I've received a lot since the book came out is, why would the father, a nuclear scientist, even build a fallout shelter? Because he knows that it wouldn't really work. And my answer to that is, <laughs> that's exactly why he still does it anyway, yeah, yeah. because it's about feeling safe. It's about giving his family the sense of protection that we have a plan, even though it wouldn't really mean anything. And sometimes that's all you have. And we knew that at the time and still like partook in this civil defense charade. So it was completely part of just the belief system. Well, it it says a lot about the human psyche and what we need. All right. So in the book, your main characters are Dean, the the nuclear scientist who works at the Sterling Creek plant, his wife, Nellie, and their young son, Wilson. But both Dean and Nellie have backstories, things that happened to them and shaped them in certain ways prior to their marriage. And I like the way you brought those backstories in. But as an author, how do you know when to go back in time and capture that so that you don't break the narrative of the story? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'll say first that I, I figured out their backstory because originally the book was a short story collection and it explored like different um, points in time to the different characters. So I, as the author, already knew their background and how it affected them in the present. Um, I think it's very important in the writing process to jump to flashback when it makes sense for a character to mentally jump into flashback. You know, as humans, we have flashbacks all the time. Like we see something that sparks a memory, we hear a song, something reminds us of a different place in time. And so that is what you want to capture and evoke in a story like this that is set um, all in 24 hours. So the timeline is very compressed. But it made sense to me that in a scene, there would be something that triggers a memory. And that's what allows us to go back. And we don't just have random flashbacks that feel out of place. And so it's a very delicate line. But I have to ask myself, would my character naturally remember this in this scene? Yeah, it works very well, and, and it, you handled it well. Now, since you mentioned characters and the fact that you knew the characters ahead of time, let me ask you this question. 
Sometimes authors will tell me they started with a story idea. And sometimes, I think surprisingly to listeners, they'll say, no, I actually started with a character idea. For this story, Atomic Family, which was it for you, or was it a combination? It was actually a concept. Mm -hmm. I think I was so fascinated with the, the stories my father told me because what he was telling me, my grandfather, by the way, died in the 70s, so I never met him. But, you know, I grew up hearing about this father figure in a top secret job, married to a woman who was very depressed, who was an alcoholic. And it was this strange, tense, toxic home environment coupled with the top secret nature of work that could not be discussed about at all. And I found that so so strange and eerie, mm-hmm. and, and it allowed me to play with, like, the Southern Gothic setting. So I think I knew the concept. Like, I want to write a novel about a family in the Cold War dealing with the weight of the world. Like, what does it look like to bring home worries about nuclear war, like, in the midst of trying to take care of your child and, like, just keep your family and house afloat? And I knew – so I guess it's a blend of character and and story, but the plot, the plot ended up changing a lot as I worked on it, but I knew the concept from the beginning. Well, you know, it's interesting that you're talking about the characters in that, because, so one of the things that struck me, and it works so well in the novel, is because of the work at the plant, Dean is not really allowed to tell Nellie very much about what he does and what the plant does. He has to keep secrets from her about his work. But it seemed that that bled over into the relationship as a whole, and they keep mm-hmm. secrets from each other as well, correct? Oh, completely. I mean, I think if that's like the nature of your marriage and your life, it's just so natural that you start to keep other secrets. And I think that Nellie's response is to say, fine, then I will have secrets of my own. And it becomes spiteful um, and creates this like um, cavernous distance between them in their relationship as it grows. Yeah, it does. And it's rather sad. So talk to me about the character of Nellie because she comes across, she's a very interesting character, but she comes across as a bit of a tragic figure and she can't really enter Dean's world. So it, she's really kind of stuck. Talk to me about her. Yeah, I really wanted to have a complicated 60s housewife figure. I think that Nellie is someone who is deeply unsatisfied and would probably be unsatisfied or dissatisfied no matter what. That's just the nature of her personality is she's going to critique everything and just um, she probably needs mental health intervention that was just not readily available at the time. Um, She is someone who suffered, I believe, undiagnosed postpartum depression. There are some scenes of her after Wilson was born that are very significant. And I think she feels small in the shadow of her husband. She feels like no matter what I do, even if I did get a job and tried to do something important for a woman in 1961, um, it will not be significant compared to the work that my husband does. And that bothers her so deeply um, that she just feels like her, her life will not be remembered, will not be important. Um, so she, she is a very deeply tragic and flawed character and unable to, um, I think, accurately voice what she needs from her husband, mm-hmm. um, just as he is not able to voice it back to her. Yeah, it, it's that part of it is troubling. Not, not, not doesn't take away from the novel. It's talking about the psychological aspect. She, she's somebody that seems 
to want to define herself in reference to to Dean, and she just is incapable of it. But part of that is because of her backstory, right? Yes, completely. Yeah, um, yeah I don't want to yeah, give don't, away spoilers, right. but um, okay. and you know, Dean, we learn a lot about her, her yeah, family. Yeah, and then Dean, let's talk a little bit about um, the husband here. Dean, Dean is a conflicted person as well, isn't he? Oh, he is. And I, he was a very hard character to write at first because, you know, I'm not a nuclear scientist. I found it very intimidating at the beginning to enter his world and build a plot that would feel both believable historically, but interesting enough for, you know, the average reader to follow. Um, And once I decided to go with his ethical dilemma, he came to life for me. He is someone who's deeply conflicted wants to do the right thing, but doesn't even really know what that is. And is getting different um, advice from people he works works with at the plant who have varying perspectives on the nuclear arms race and what it looks like to fix a broken system. Some people will say, you fix it from the inside. Other people will say, no, you need to voice, you know, an issue publicly. But the stakes for that are about as big as they can be in this era. Yeah, and, you know, he starts off, at least for me, he starts off as being a little less sympathetic as a character, but then I start to identify with what he's struggling with uh, as it goes. So I thought that, again, was one of those things that that worked really well uh, in the development of the character. Did you know he was going to end up, and I'm going to ask you about the ethical issue in just a second, did you know he was going to confront that at some point when you started writing his character, or did that evolve? It evolved. I wasn't really sure what I wanted his arc to be to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I discovered that in a lot of the revision process. But one thing I, that was important to me from the beginning is that because this is largely the story of a marriage, that neither of them have like the right perspective. They both have subjective memories and experiences of, of the other. And um, I think both have valid reasons to be angry <laughs> at each other. And I didn't want it to be like, Dean is the bad guy, Nellie is right, because she definitely makes really terrible decisions, oh, too. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's real life. And so my hope was that as you read, you you side with him, and then you side with her, and then you side with him, and then you side with her, because they both... They both are right in their own their own way. Their own, yeah, their own and, world. and again, that works. One thing that struck me was, and this is so true, unfortunately, in so many marriages, neither one of them had the tools uh, to address mm-hmm. what was going on. So they just keep going down that rabbit hole, um, doing what they know, what, the only things they know to do. Yeah, completely. And they also are products of their era, yeah. you know? Like, yeah, yeah. I think Dean thinks I am protecting my family as head of the household by controlling the money, but then the financial strain and Tonelli feels abusive or she's like, I have to ask you for basically an allowance to go get groceries. And it creates a really toxic environment where both of them are also just products of of the era. Yeah, they are. Some of us grew up during those eras and and saw that uh, interaction between spouses. All right. So in addition to the fact that people in 1961, when the book is set, feared a possible nuclear attack by the Soviet Union. And maybe as a result, uh, it was also a time um, only a few years removed from the McCarthy era when there was still not a lot of trust as to who was being patriotic and who might be a spy. Uh, Correct? And that plays also into the relationship. It does. It does. It it plays into the whole family dynamic where there is still this red scare 
and this belief that if you are not fully aligned with what America is doing, if you are not fully patriotic and on board, then you're against us, then you must be a communist. And one of the kind of background narratives to the book is the Oppenheimer trial, in which Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb um, on the Manhattan Project, was publicly shamed because he he voiced protest about the nuclear arms race, the use of the hydrogen bomb, its development. And because he because he did not agree with what was happening, he was considered to be a traitor. And it was shocking, like the father of the atomic bomb is a traitor. <laughs> and I think that that hangs over Dean as this terrible fear. Like if I speak out, if I do what I think is right, this is my future. And what does that mean for my family? What does that mean for me as a vet? Like I, I am very patriotic, but that that doesn't mean you agree with everything. <laughs> you can still have doubts and questions and want to make the world a better place. And that whole atmosphere and mood is in, is ingrained in the family because when Nellie decides to join a women's movement that's um, speaking out against nuclear warfare, the implication could be that her husband could be investigated, he could be looked into. So um, that becomes a really important element in how they are uh, avoiding each other, keeping secrets from each other, and also protesting each other. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about whether somebody's patriotic or not. I, I flash back, are we talking about 1961 or are we talking about right now? But anyway, yeah. which is one of the nice <laughs> things about the novel because it's a reflection back. You mentioned Oppenheimer, and actually in my questions I was going to ask you about him. Um, he lost his security clearance, actually, as a result, uh, if my memory is correct, as a result That's of right. the so-called investigation. And interestingly, I'm going to say, you're probably going to know more than me, in the last year or two, they retroactively uh, re- gave him his security clearance back, even though he was deceased, uh, recognizing, oh, yeah, recognizing the era of their ways. Um, it, it, yeah, I, mean, we, I don't want to go too far down that, that rabbit hole, but Edward Teller was one of the ones who pushed for him to lose mm-hmm. his security clearance. All right, but at the mm-hmm. heart of the book, there is also this ethical dilemma, which grows over time, involving Dean. And he has to decide kind of what he's comfortable with and, 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 you know, what he's willing to do. So that brings me back to Oppenheimer because I saw the parallel there. Did you do a lot of research on Robert, Robert Oppenheimer and the path his career took uh, after being involved in the Manhattan Project? Yeah, I did a good deal of research. And there are some um, titles listed in the acknowledgement section yeah. that I don't want to butcher right now. But um, there were several about the change that happened after we dropped the atomic bombs. And there actually is a chapter in the novel that kind of explores like how attitudes changed after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But in short, many scientists felt that um, the atomic bomb was justified also because of the wartime conflict, but that the development of the much larger hydrogen bomb was not and so that gets very, very tricky very fast. Like who determines what is morally justified and what's not. Um, but the way that his career path went was, I think, haunting to many scientists who yeah. felt afraid to voice any kind of dissent because they too would not just lose their livelihood, right, but be deemed a public traitor. Like it's it's a huge stakes to consider um, at this time. And the Oppenheimer trial would have been just a few years before this book takes place. Yeah, and you know what, though? It, the ethical dilemma that Dean faces in the book, although it's, it's anchored in the times, 
is something I think folks can identify across the board in their own lives, unrelated to nuclear science. You know, we're confronted periodically, as Dean was confronted with, what is the right thing to do? Uh, and I just, it just worked well and, and made me think about that in, in, in my own life and, and friends as well. All right, so talk, let's talk about one of the more interesting characters here, the young boy Wilson, mm-hmm. and what he represents. He, he becomes, as you mentioned earlier, as a child being subjected to all this propaganda or information, somewhat obsessed with what might happen if the Soviets decide to attack. What, what does he represent in our collective psyche at that time? Um, in, in the sixties yeah. in particular, I think he represents the belief in what we're told, you know, there's so much propaganda, but I wanted Wilson to take it literally and not be able to filter out what is exaggeration. What is a political cartoon? You know, what is just repetition, like the Bert, the turtle duck and cover cartoons. Um, I wanted him to completely believe everything and take it at face value. Um, And I thought that that added an almost comedic sense to him as well. There is a, there's a section in his, I believe it's his first chapter where he lists out words that communists use. And it's Mm -hmm. like colonialism, materialism. That's a real list of words that someone generated to look out for. And when we read that, I find it really funny. It's just like, it's like a hit list of, I don't know, like academic terms. Um, but Wilson writes them all down and says, if I hear this word, I will know this person is a communist. So it was that kind of attitude. Um, I think he captures the belief in what, whatever narrative we're, we're, we're given. Yeah. As a and, and, and how it affects us when one becomes basically obsessed with uh, the information and cannot parcel mm-hmm. fact from fiction, right? Right. Because he's so young. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And I compare that a lot to my own childhood. Um, This will show my age, but one of my earliest memories is 9-11. And there were a lot of parallels because the way that, you know, the war on terror was talked about to children was terrifying. (laughs) It was like, people Mm -hmm. hate us. You know, we are in wartime. We have to be vigilant. I know I was scared of airplanes and airports. And it was just part of the message that was delivered to me as a child. And children just take these things very literally and they think there could be a bomber on any plane because that's what we've been told about the world. Um, and so I think that there's, there's a lot of modern day parallels, yes. whether we're talking about the war on terror or school shootings and, you know, school shooting drills that children have to go through. So right. it's about what do we tell children about the way the world works? Yeah. And that trauma, especially is spoke exposed to when you're young, doesn't easily leave us, does it? And it doesn't leave Wilson. No, yeah. I I describe it like the propaganda has entered his body like radiation. It's just like it's it's filtered through every part of him. Yeah. Um, and he can't separate himself from his fear and anxiety about the world. It enters his dreams. It, it enters his playtime. It is it's just completely taken over. And, you know, one of the things, and, and I don't know if this was meant as a metaphor, but it worked, it worked really well, is at one point through a, a certain series of events that happens to Wilson, uh, he can no longer make any memories. And to me, that meant you were telling us that he, he lives with no present, only with mm-hmm. the fear of the future. Is that, am mm-hmm. I reading too much into that? No, I, I love that interpretation. Um, yeah. He's, he's stuck in this, 
the cyclical nature of his stress and anxiety. And yeah. He just lives in it. And it and you know it's again another, the novel as a whole is this is true of, but it's another point that's relevant to the current uh, times. All right, so listen, novelists will often tell me that when they create a good character, that character helps write the novel. In fact, one of the more humorous interviews I had a fellow say, an author say, sometimes my characters will say, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, (laughs) Did you find that true with Dean or Nellie or Wilson, that they actually helped write the story? Oh, I did. Especially Nellie, I think. Mm -hmm. Like once I figured out who she was and saw her anger, boil over the course of the first half of the book, her her decisions made so much sense to me, this desire to get away and be mm-hmm. a little bit wild, a little bit crazy, and to get attention that she thinks she needs. So yeah, voice and character are everything for me as a novelist. If you find the right, the right voice, um, the way that the words read on the page with the tone of the character, um, it really helps. And the other thing that helped me in this particular case was that I almost thought of it like three short stories, like they all have a beginning, climax, and end mm-hmm. of every character arc. And there had to be a natural conclusion to their arc. It couldn't just like disappear for the right. family narrative. It had to like, every character had to have some kind of resolution. Um, yeah. And it, it spoke for itself. I did go back and forth on Dean's. Mm-hmm. So that was interesting. I tried a couple different ways. I wanted his narrative to end. Um, basically, will he be a whistleblower or won't he? And um, landed on what I felt was the most satisfactory. But we tried a bunch. So <laughs> sometimes it's not always clear. Well, that's part of the process. All right. Well, let me mm-hmm. let me end with this. You know, I always like to ask writers, why do you write? And, you know, sometimes folks will say, um, oh, look, I write for myself. And others will say that they write to make a social or a political point. And a few honest ones will say, I do it for the money. Why, why is it that you write, and in particular, um, this novel? I think I write to explore the world and my experience of it. I mean, I've been writing my whole life. I am one of those people who really knew I wanted to be a writer as a young, young child. Like I started my first quote unquote, very quote unquote novel at like 11 um, and just had this natural desire to process things through words. So it feels very innate and intrinsic. Like I know I would write novels even if it was just for me. Um, So it's also very joyful, even though it's very hard work. Um, It's just something that I love to do. And um, it it allows me to or themes that are very important to me. And, you know, I, I assume this to be true. Tell me if I'm right. It's also self-reflective, right? When you have to get into a character like Dean or Nellie or even Wilson, and you have to, and they confront different situations, um, it's self-reflective, correct? Oh, it is. I mean, there's so much of me in all three characters. Right. All of them. Like this, you know, this Dean character who so wants to do what's right. I definitely feel like that. I, I'm an Enneagram one. If you follow those like <laughs> trends on personality types, like I, it, it very much matters to me to do the right thing. But at the same time, when I was writing the book, I was really dealing with questions of, do I even want to have children? And so Nellie's like perception of motherhood was a lot of what I was working through. Um, 
And then, of course, my own childhood memories taken to the utmost extreme um, in Wilson. So, you know, you, you put yourself into all of it, and that helped me make them feel like real people because I empathize with and understand all of them. Gotcha. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to the Writers Forum, and I've been speaking with the author Sierra Horton McElroy about her debut novel, Atomic Family. Sierra, is there a website or other social media folks can go to in order to learn more about the book and about yourself? Yeah, certainly. My website is sierramcelroy.com. I am very active on Instagram. You can find me at Sierra H. McElroy, and I'm also on TikTok at Sierra Writes. Sierra, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was great to chat. This edition of the Writers' Forum was brought to you by the law firm of Alker and Rather, LLC. Tune in next Tuesday at 4 p.m. for the next edition of the Writers' Forum.